one of the many benefits of doing what I do for a living and as a life is the opportunity to be able to meet with people who elevate my own spiritual walk. There are people that I come in contact with, who I rub shoulders with, that have certainly raised the bar for me in my own spiritual existence. One such man was Harold Taylor. But the Taylor passed, I think, just the last year or so. And I know some of you know him. He preached for many, many years over in Carrollton, Texas. And I still remember there were times in in the years past just here from this pulpit, I would reference his name. And Al and Millie Barnett would, would always walk out and say, oh, we knew Harold and we loved and appreciated him as well. He held a couple of gospel meetings for us when I was preaching in the Atlanta area. And, uh, and we kind of hit it off, you know, uh, and, and I really enjoyed being with him. And I think he was probably the kind of guy that everybody who spent time with him left that saying, you know, we really hit it off. I mean, he was that kind of guy. It was very easy to connect with Brother Harold. And so there were times when he would be coming through Atlanta. You know what? It's always been said, wherever you go in eternity, you have to stop over in Atlanta first. And so Brother Harold and his many speaking engagements would uh, fly into Atlanta and, and we would usually arrange for lunch together and we would quiz each other and talk to one another about what's going on in our lives and our families and in the kingdom of Christ. That leads us to this thought. Oftentimes those conversations would revolve around some of the problem areas that the church is dealing with. And in particular, those areas that the local congregations are dealing with. And I remember distinctly one of those conversations, eventually Brother Harold said, you know, Brother Randy, every problem that I see in local congregations are only symptomatic. They all boil down to a lack of commitment on the part of at least some of the membership. You know, and that's exactly right. And that's not meant to be negative, but it is meant to be spiritually insightful. And, and to be able to identify the problem is then to be able to rectify the problem. And so a, a lack of commitment on our part is the problem for the four main things that Harold and I usually talked about. Number one would be a lack of participation in kingdom work. Why can't we get our members involved? A second area would be a, a lack of numerical growth and soul winning. Why aren't we growing? Why are our own members so reluctant to share the good news with, with their, those around them who are lost? And then even a lack of faithful attendance at our services, at our Bible studies and our corporate worship. And then finally, criticism and backbiting and infighting and, and church fusses that go on in so many different places. Again, all of those boil down to a lack of commitment. Now, I'm not going to spend very much time this morning on the problem, thankfully. I want us to look at our text that Joseph just read as the, as the answer to the problem. We need a couple of doses of the Macedonian congregation. Anytime we look at ourselves or look at the church corporately and say that we don't have the kind of level of commitment that we really need to have if we're going to win the world for Christ. And the two things that I want us to appreciate, if you still have your Bible or your, your device open to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the two things I want us to notice about that 
that particular congregation, and, and, and you'll notice that Paul was commending these people. This is not any kind of censure. This is not a criticism. Paul is saying these people are to be commended and they're to be emulated for at least two reasons. First of all, we learn in our text that, that liberality does not depend on what you have. It depends on your attitude toward what you have. A man with $2 can be just as as miserly and materialistic as a man with two million or even two billion, depending on what your attitude is toward what you have. And though, so that's one of the lessons. Paul was commending these people from Macedonia because out of their deep poverty, not just poverty, their deep poverty, Paul says, they, they gave to the work of Christ even when it hurt. They, didn't, they were giving away what they didn't have, seems to be Paul's implication here. They were, they were sacrificing for the cause of Christ because they were that committed to it. And then also the Macedonians gave liberty out of, liberally out of their poverty. And, and the answer is, that's the second thing I want us to notice. He tells us at the end of verse 5, here's why they were willing to be so sacrificial in their giving. Because they first gave themselves to the Lord. And that's the key to the lack of commitment on the part of every Christian and every congregation where that may exist. I hope that we understand that. I wrestle with that, and I sense that others do as well. And so I want us to follow that thought for just a few minutes together this morning. And I believe it's very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, when he discussed two classes of people. This is a very familiar passage, and you know what it says. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, step number one, let him deny himself. Step number two, let him take up his cross. Step number three, and let him follow me. He Then he goes on to say, But for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You may be wondering, what are the two classes of people that Jesus is talking about in those two verses. Well, it's those who are willing to deny themselves and to take up their cross, and then clearly those who are not. And Jesus says everyone who makes the decision, the, the conscious decision that they're going to follow Jesus and be his disciple needs to have that rock-bottom commitment. They need to start with that. They need to follow through with that. And they need to end their lives strong by continuing that level of commitment by demonstrating to others how important the cause of Christ is in your life. By the way you think, by the way you talk, by the way you act. Everybody ought to be able to see it obvious in a child of God that this is not just something that's important. This is the most important thing to every one of us in this building, to those who are watching online, to everyone who loves God, who loves his church, and who loves the cause of Christ. Recognize that this kind of commitment we first gave ourselves to the Lord is necessary for success in the kingdom of Christ. Now, consider some other relevant passages. I'm not going to spend much time on any of this. I just want you to know that there are many other passages that talk about the level of commitment that's required on behalf of those who decide to follow Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 7. I'm not even going to read the whole verse. Just the relevant part. Let us give ourselves to the ministry. That's talking about commitment there. Acts 6 and verse 4. But we will give ourselves, the apostle said, continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15. Give yourself wholly or completely 
to these things. That's total commitment that he's talking about. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, for you are not your own, for you have been bought or purchased with a price. Galatians 2.20, one we're familiar with, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live. Acts 27.23, for there stood by me this night the angel of God, watch this, whose I am and whom I serve. Matthew 22.37, our Lord said, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then Joshua chapter 14, verse 8, is a wonderful illustration of this level of commitment with skin on. And the man's name is Caleb. And the Bible says this. In fact, it says this twice in the pages of the Old Testament about Caleb. Caleb wholly followed the Lord. That means that everything that Caleb did, he did with an end toward doing the will of God in his life. That's the level of commitment that we're talking about and thinking about this morning. You know, there are many different philosophies in this world about how a person can be happy and how they can live a fulfilled life. It just depends on who you ask. And I think we're in all in tacit agreement on that point. There are some that say that the way to be happy and to have fulfillment and gratification is through hedonism. The idea that we ought to be able to experience as much pleasure as we possibly can and stay away from as much pain as we can. Well, I'm all for the pain part. I want to stay away from pain. How about you? But the problem with that as a philosophy of life is that it doesn't work whether it's Hugh Hefner or some other who says that the key to happiness is through pleasure, hasn't read this book. God says there are better ways to find happiness and fulfillment and meaning in life. There are others like Eric Fromm and Sigmund Freud who say if we could just understand ourselves, the key to happiness is psychoanalysis. If we could just understand our motives and why we do what we do. No, God says that's not really that important. What is important, though, is that we change our motives and we change the cause for our thinking and for our action, and we'll find our actions then. Our lives have been also changed. The Bible gives the real key to happiness. And in fact, you can find something about that theme on just about every page of Scripture. And that's to give yourself, watch this carefully, church, the key to happiness, as, as set forth in Scripture, is to give yourself unreservedly to the Lord in service to a cause greater than yourself. And if you do that, you'll be happy. Now, you won't always be experiencing pleasure every moment of every day any more than those early Christians did. But that's the key to happiness. That's the key to meaning and purpose in life, is to give yourself unreservedly with total commitment to a cause greater than yourself. Now I'm going to have to go ahead and confess just here that I've known some unhappy Christians and I know that you have too. But again, the problem is the level of commitment. Their happiness rises along with the level of their commitment. And so while I readily admit that I know that there is the very distinct possibility that you can be a Christian, you can be a, a member of the church and still not be happy, I can go also go on record as saying I have never met or seen or been with an unhappy, dedicated Christian. The problem with their unhappiness is, if they are unhappy, is because they're not really totally committed to the Lord and to his cause. They're riding the fence, and that's always an uncomfortable place to be. 
So consider with me quickly, if you will, this morning, what will happen if you really give yourself to the cause of Christ. I suggest four things. Number one, he will write your name among the great people of the earth. He will write your name among the great people of the earth. The Bible gives us some examples of what that means. Back in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11, the Bible says this about Moses, and I'm, and I'm quoting here. And Jehovah spoke unto Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Sometimes if you're playing Bible trivia or answering those kinds of questions, and somebody says, who is the only person who's ever been called a friend of God? The correct answer is Moses. I'll go ahead and tell you. You can fill in that blank. And the Bible talks about Moses in that re- How would you like to have that said about you? How would you like to have that engraved on your headstone? This person was a friend of God. And know that that, 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 uh, that sentiment has God's approval. He's the one who said this about Moses. Now, the problem with, with our existence is that our name probably will never be in the headlines of, of any major newspaper, probably not even our local newspaper. But it can be in the Lamb's Book of Life. And to the person who's totally committed, that's what's most important. It isn't that we get recognition and fame and publicity and the paparazzi is always following us. That's not the key to happiness. In fact, if you've watched many of those folks followed around by the paparazzi, I I think it's the key to unhappiness. But to know that my name is inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life is what gives me meaning and reason for getting up in the morning. How about you? Moses is described as a friend of God because he chose to commit himself to following God and doing his will rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin even temporarily. I know that because the Bible tells me so in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24. It says that that exact thing. And the result is that Moses' name is inscribed in Faith's Hall of Fame here in Hebrews chapter 11. Folks, I'd rather have my name in God's book than to be on every newspaper headline and to have my name on the lips of every TV and radio commentator in the world. I'd rather have my name in the Lamb's Book of Life than to be featured in Sports Illustrated, and that's saying something. When we understand what's most important in life, then we understand what it is that we ought to be totally 100% committed to in life. And once we're committed... And we have that rising, growing, progressive level of commitment. We will find greater gratification, greater meaning, greater purpose, and greater happiness in our lives. Why is it that that ought to be our emphasis? Well, Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 18. For we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. You see, God's people have a special insight that has been given to us by this revelation from God about what's most or what should be most important in life. And it has nothing to do with what you can see. It has nothing to do, again, with your name in the headline of the newspaper. It has everything to do with God's approval of our lives and of our actions. The Bible says in Acts 17 that there were some prominent and influential Jews in Thessalonica 
who said this about Paul and his company. I'm quoting now. This is Acts 17 and verse 6. Those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I believe that those words were spoken somewhat as a warning to everyone else. They wanted their people to know that those people who are causing so much trouble, but the the way they phrased it is so powerful and so profound. Those who have turned the world upside down. Now that was intended, I think, as, as an insult, but really it was a compliment because these men were totally committed to the cause of Christ. And those early Christians shook the world from center to circumference. Why is that? I think it's the same reason as as was described in our text. Because they first gave themselves to the Lord. Now you could disagree with these men. You could disagree with with their message. But you could not ignore them. They were a force to be reckoned with. And I also hope that we appreciate that these were not supermen. I think sometimes in Bible classes, I've heard the idea at least implied, well, you know, if if I had everything going for me that Paul or Peter or some of these other Bible, right, even the Old Testament, these Bible characters had, then I'd be able to do that too. These, These were not supermen. Maybe we need to correct a misunderstanding. You see, this is not an ordinary book about extraordinary men. This is an extraordinary book about ordinary men. And the Bible goes to some pain in in several places to help us to appreciate that. Let me just give you one example. In James chapter 5 and verse 17, James is talking about, starting with verse 16, about the power of prayer. The effective prayer of a righteous person avails much. And, And then in verse 17, he says, let me give you an example of that. And he talks about Elijah. And then he goes on to say, and I I think this phraseology is so interesting. He goes on to say, who was a man of like passions, just as we are. That just means that that Elijah was a a mortal person. He was a human being, just like the rest of us. My high school football coach would have said it like this. Boys, he put his pants on just like we do, one leg at a time. So he was a real person. He did not have some kind of super quality. These were not superpowers. These were things that everyone could exemplify, and that's why James included him at the end of his book. I want you to know when we're talking about the power of prayer and the effectiveness of doing God's will in your life, just like Elijah, you can be totally committed to the Lord and to his cause. And what's the difference between those people that we read about in Scripture and many of us? It's, it's the level of commitment. If I'm totally committed to Christ, here's the second thing that will happen. He will increase, he will increase your seed for sowing. That is, if I may be even more specific, that means he will give you additional talents. I know that because the Bible tells me so. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 10 contains this principle. How may he, now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food... Supply, watch this, and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Now, you may want to read through that passage a couple of times to get the full gist of it. But I hope that we understand that what Paul is promising that God will do for us is simply this. If you will use your talents and your God-given abilities, he will give you more. He will multiply those talents. And then he gave us Matthew chapter 25 as a working illustration of that principle. You may remember that the two and the five talent men 
They used their talents well and wisely and faithfully, and they received more talents. In fact, if I remember correctly, their talents actually were doubled. The two-talent man eventually became the four-talent man. The five-talent man became the ten-talent man. But God said, you are to be commended for using your abilities and your talents wisely and using them faithfully. The one-talent man who buried his talent in the ground, of course, was condemned by the master. But there's a principle there we all need to appreciate. And that is, whatever talent you have, or whatever talents, plural, that you may have, if you will use those talents in the kingdom of Christ and to the glory of God, he will increase your seed for sowing. That is a Bible fact. And we can claim that any moment that we decide to do that. But claiming that, claiming that promise is all dependent, once again, on our level of commitment. If I'm not really committed to Christ, I'm not really interested in using my talents to his glory and to the betterment of his kingdom. Now, sadly, the same principle in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 10 also works in reverse. And the Bible tells us over and over again, at least in principle, that if you don't use it, you lose it. Now, that's not King James, but that's what it says. That if we're not using our talents and abilities, we're not using any of the resources that God has given to us, we're going to lose those resources. I can think of many, or at least some, in my experience as a Christian and as a gospel preacher, who at one time had great talents and great abilities, but over the course of time they lost those because they did not use them faithfully. But here's the positive side of that same coin. I and you have also known people who weren't, had no really remarkable talents that were obvious to anyone, and yet they developed great talents over the course of time because whatever they did have, they used faithfully to God's glory and to the betterment of his kingdom. So that's a Bible principle, and it's a Bible promise that we can all claim. They, they've just learned to do what they can with what they have where they are and know that God will be pleased and he will bless them with additional seed for sowing. Thirdly, God will give you victories that you never dreamed possible. Again, all of this is correspondent to the level of commitment that we are willing to reflect in our Christian lives. Ephesians chapter 3.20 has got to be one of the greatest victory verses in all the Bible. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. What Paul is telling us, and it's pretty clear, is that you can't even begin to imagine what good, what great things God can do in your life if only you're willing to be used by him according to the power that works in us is that factor. I think that's what that's all about. If only we will commit ourselves totally to the cause of Christ we will be able to claim the promise of Ephesians 3 verse 20. Now some regrettably have the frying pan mentality in the church today. Here's what I mean by that. A man was out fishing in his boat one day on a nearby lake. He saw another man in a boat about 50 yards from where he was fishing. He was careful not to make, you know, to make sure that he didn't get too close so that they tangled their lines. But over the course of the next 30 minutes or so, he noticed something interesting. And that was that the man in the boat 50 yards away was catching plenty of fish, but every fish that he caught that was over six inches, he threw back in. All the smaller fish he kept, 
and, and, and put in a cooler in his boat. Well, he saw that happening. I mean, all the good ones he was throwing away and all the small ones he was keeping. And he finally rode over and he said, I've just got to ask you. I've been watching you for the last hour or so now, and you're throwing away any fish that's under six inches. Why in the world would you do that? He said, that's easy. I only got a frying pan at home about that big. And there are a lot of people who have a frying pan mentality about life. Anything that's too big, I'm afraid of, and I'm going to throw it back in. Do you know that there are actually people who exist who want to see the cause of Christ kept small? I've associated with some of those people, unfortunately, over the years. I've been in some business meetings where that's been discussed. That is the prevailing theme. As long as we keep it small, we know God will approve of this. No, that's not what Scripture says. In fact, no wonder Dowell Flatt used to say, in fact, I heard him say this at a lectureship one time. He got up and he said, Brother, I want you to know, I'm not as old as I look. I've just been to a lot of business meetings. Well, it'll age you. Especially if the prevailing mentality is we've got to keep the Lord's church small. Let me tell you something. This is true biblically and mathematically. We need to realize that even if the church grew a hundredfold in the next few years, we would still be in the minority per capita in terms of our relationship and ratio with the world population. Did you hear what I said? If we grew a hundredfold, we would still be in the minority. So we have no reason to pat ourselves on the back and say we're through with our work, our day is done. And the positive side of all of this is that if every member of the church, this is not new, I've told you this before and I know you've thought about it. If every member of the Lord's church would convert just one person per year, in 10 years the whole world would be converted. Now that's the mathematical side of it. That is the reality. If only we would be totally committed to the Lord and to his cause. What great things could be done. And yet, the hardest place for us to work is in our own local community and in our own family. Have you found that to be true? Sometimes the hardest people it is to broach the subject of spirituality is with the people that you know best and you care the most about. It's because of that level of familiarity sometimes that, that creates a wall or, or, or a, a difficulty for us to be able to open up and, and to talk to them about those things. That's, that's why sometimes it's easier to go to the other side of the world and be a part of a campaign than it is to try to evangelize the community that we're in right now. We need to be committed to winning everybody, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they are, no matter how much it costs. No matter what the color of their skin is, we need to be dedicated. That's a part of total commitment to winning everyone we can with the good news of Jesus Christ to the gospel and to be able to bring them back from Satan's side and bring them over to the Lord's side where they can live with meaning and purpose and someday go to heaven. That's what it's all about. And if it isn't, then I've been reading the wrong book. It's it's very possible To give ourselves to the Lord outwardly, but never inwardly. That was the problem with the Pharisees, you may recall from Matthew chapter 23. And that's why the Lord really called them on the carpet. The most scathing denunciation that the Lord ever gave to anyone was with the Pharisees. Those who were religious leaders there in Matthew chapter 23. And it's very possible for us to do that. To just be concerned with how we look on the outside. And not about how totally committed we are. On the inside, 
we can come to worship and we can sing over and over again, Oh, how I love Jesus and all to Jesus I surrender and never really ever think about or contemplate the level of commitment that we have verbalized in the singing of those songs. You know, it's easy to say thy will be done when we're talking about somebody else. Let me tell you what, folks. When we can say thy will be done and we're talking about our own lives and our own selves and our own service to Christ, the church will march forward like never before. Here's a fourth and last thing that will happen when we totally commit ourselves to the Lord and to his worthy cause. And that is, and I mean this with all sincerity, he will make an adventure out of your life. One of the wonderful things about being a child of God is the people that we come to know and the experiences that we are able to have. You know, there are people that when Jesus came to this world and began his public ministry and began talking to people about how important it was that they make the decision to follow him and to become his disciples, there were times when entire communities would say, look what's come into this world. We referenced one of them a moment ago. The, the people who have turned the world upside down have come here also, Acts seventeen six. I wonder if people can say about you and me, look what's come into his or her life. Can they see a real difference now that we're following Jesus, now that we've made the decision to be New Testament Christians and to do everything that we can to to be students of this book and to encourage and edify and build each other up and to share that good word with others that will save their eternal souls. Can people say, look what's coming to his life. I don't know what's different, but something is different. There's something that's going on in his or her life that has really made a change. There's been a transformation. Is there a real difference in our lives now that the love of Christ has captured our hearts? That's the question I'm asking this morning, hopefully for your consideration. Somebody has said, hand me down clothes are better than no clothes at all. I'm not sure about that because I only had an older sister. I'll allow you to consider the implications of that. But I've been told by others that when you have hand me down clothes, it's a whole lot better than not having any. But you know what? It's still not as good as having new clothes. Ones that you are able to go pick out and say, that's exactly what I like. It suits me, and I want to wear that, and I would actually like to be seen in public wearing that. Some are members of the Lord's church, but they just have a hand-me-down religion. There may be a variety of reasons why they made the decision to become a member of a particular church. Sometimes it's social reasons. Sometimes it's business reasons. It just makes good business sense. I'll be able to go to church, you know, on Sundays and rub elbows with the people that I can do business with on Monday morning. And I can enhance my business that way. But what I'm saying is they're not what they are religiously because of any real spiritual commitment they've made in view of eternity. That has no real bearing on the decision that they've made. But the Bible says that the biggest problem that we can have in, in Christian living is half living it. Not being totally committed. And I'm going to go ahead and say it again. Some of the most miserable people that I have ever met are people who are half committed to Christ. They made the decision and they were actually immersed in water at some point. But they're miserable because they're not committed 
to what it was that they purported to be doing when they made that decision to be baptized into Christ. It's kind of like the little boy who said that he cut his dog's tail off an inch at a time because it would have been too painful to do it all at once. I know people like that. And folks, I'm just saying it's a whole lot easier and a whole lot better to just go ahead right up front and commit ourselves 100% with total commitment to the cause of Christ when we decide that we're going to follow him. So it's possible to be even in the church. And to have our name on a church roll somewhere and to be convinced and perhaps convicted but never really converted. All because of this level of commitment that we've been talking about this morning. I want to end this study by saying everybody will give themselves to something. There will be some cause that you will find. And whenever I read the news and watch television and sometimes even watch a few YouTube clips, it's amazing to me what some people can get dedicated to. I was watching a clip a couple of days ago about people who climb mountains like El Capitan, and they do so without any tethering, any ropes. It's called free climbing. I prefer to think of it as free falling. But why would you want to do that? Well, it's an adrenaline rush. Yeah, but that's not the last thing that I want to experience while I'm on planet Earth. But, but again, those kinds of things, you, you're going to give yourself to something. It may be recreation. It, it may be have to do with the, the number of toys, the, the material things that you can accumulate. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'm going to leave you with this, makes the case for following Christ out of, for all the right reasons. And he goes on to say, and I'm synopsizing all of this, but he goes on to say that you're going to, everybody on the planet is going to have some suffering and difficulty in their life. And he says, if you're going to suffer, don't let it be as a murderer or a thief. You know, if somebody is spending the rest of their life behind bars because they murdered somebody or they stole someone's property, your, your, your reaction to that is, well, they kind of had it coming, didn't they? Uh, that's called justice. That's called karma. At the very least. But, but Peter goes on to say, you're going to suffer for something. Don't suffer as a murderer or as a thief. If you're going to suffer, let it be for the greatest cause on earth. And that just makes good sense. It's more painful and more difficult to not give ourselves totally to the Lord than it is to actually do it. So let me end by saying, what would it take to make you happy? Jesus said, would you give yourself? Would you give everything in you? Heart, soul, strength, and mind. Because that is exactly what the Lord said it will take if we really want to find any modicum of happiness on this earth. We sometimes sing, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence, daily live. I surrender all. Can you say with Paul, for the which cause I also suffer these things? Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12 says, Paul, let me ask you, how can you be so happy and so contented, even though you're being at that very moment mistreated, maligned, and persecuted? And his answer is, because I belong to Christ. And the love of Christ compels me.
it, it motivates me to do everything that I do with every waking moment of my life. You see, it's not who I am, it's whose I am that's the matter of central importance in discussion. And Paul said, I count all things but loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. I heard the story of an incident that took place over a hundred years ago in the country of Argentina. Where the, the local congregation of the Lord's Church was meeting at that time. But it was very small and part of the difficulty was just the standard of living in the community in which the church existed. So they decided one of the things that they would do in order to enhance the work of the kingdom and to be able to meet the needs of the community was to have sacrifice day. And so that's exactly what they did. And for months in advance, they announced that on this particular Saturday, we're going to have sacrifice day. And if there's any kind of material resource that you can bring, we're going to have a circle drawn in the dirt outside the, the little church building where we meet. And you can put those goods in that circle, and, and we will use those for the betterment of the cause of Christ and to be able to meet the needs of the people in our community, and then hopefully be able to reach them with the power and the message of the gospel. They'd done that and had reasonable success throughout that Saturday. The church leaders were rather pleased with the turnout. Until about the time the day was finished and they were about ready to, to pack up all of the things, put them in the church building, and organize them for disbursement. They saw an old man coming and they recognized him. A couple of the deacons were standing outside and recognized that as one of their newest members. But he also had the distinction of being the poorest man in town. And so almost humorously, they elbowed one another and said, I wonder what that old brother is going to bring. He doesn't have anything. And immediately they grew quiet when he walked toward them and placed himself in the circle. And, and that's what the Lord is asking every one of us. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If we'll just give ourselves wholly to the Lord, everything else will follow. And that's what we're asking you to do this day while we stand and while we sing.